I have some exciting news before we start. I just launched the Red Cheeks Academy with the first ever online workshop where you can learn about ethical production of intimate scenes. If you work with intimacy on screen in any capacity, this is for you. The workshop is for people who want to become intimacy coordinators. These can be cinematographers, producers, directors, or sex workers and performers who want to benefit from their experience. If this sounds interesting to you, head up to academy.redchicks.org to submit your application for one of the first sessions. And don't forget to check out the FAQ page with info about scholarships. Now, let's start with the podcast. This is Red Cheeks, and I'm Isabella. You had a lecture about the near-death experience. Is that correct? Uh, yes and no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was introducing a conference on psychic phenomena in psychology, and there we had a Dutch speaker there, Pim von Lommel. You might have come across him. He's lived in Arnhem. He was one of our guests. Uh, he wrote the standard book on near-death experiences based on his experiences in Arnhem Hospital. And in my introduction, I probably did. Yes, I would have spoken about near-death experiences. Not, not The whole lecture was not about it, but it was one of the phenomena that we, we, that we talked about in the conference. So I introduced the topic, yes. I thought that maybe you talked about this from your own experience. So I was like, oh, that's very no, if only, I wish I had. <laughs> I would love to have such an experience to, to see see the other side. I'd, but no, no, I have no personal experience of it happening to me. No, I just hear the reports of other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's very interesting. And I also saw you were posting quite a bit on Facebook about, uh, because, yeah, I, I kind of went through a lot of your Facebook when uh, <laughs> yes. doing a little bit of a research. Uh, but uh, you also posted some things about psychedelics. And I think psychedelics, uh, if, if you do it in the right way, they can give you this near-death experience. Apparently of, so, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Have you can. ever... Have you ever experienced any of those psychedelics? Uh, well, well, experiences, experienced experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. I have uh, in Amsterdam. Really? On, yes, on more than one occasion. Um, not entirely positive either. Mm. I found mm. on one occasion it was absolutely terrifying. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I needed to take alcohol to calm my nerves after doing it. So you mixed those two. I, I've had a bit of experience with them in, in I say in Amsterdam because I don't know. Maybe still they were freely available in shops mm -hmm. in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, but uh, mixed feelings about them. Mm -hmm. Yes. But did you ever try? So what was the uh, the setting that you uh, experienced? That was it like more uh, entertainment ish or more as a. Um, uh, guided experience by someone that because no it wasn't a guided experience by anyone it was just me on my own well well actually it was my wife at the time so i wasn't completely on my own um 
I, I had a couple of good experiences with them, but then one was really terrifying. Mm. And um, so I think they bring out whatever is there. They they accentuate it, make it stronger. And um, so I wouldn't want, I, I'm not sure I'd want to repeat it. I might sometime come back to Amsterdam. Mm. I might try again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I personally went through like, uh, I, I uh, apparently those substances are not like classified as psychedelics but it was this guided experience more so or like more in a therapy settings but i wouldn't say it was a therapy so you know it was like in a dark room uh closed eyes appropriately selected music yes. and then i went through this and uh, i this was a really very interesting experience for me yes, and yes. more on the positive, leaning more toward the positive side than uh -huh, uh, negative. Uh -huh. But again, that was only one experience on a not very um, big dose of yes. the substance. Yes. So, but, but, but I definitely am leaning toward repeating it and uh, trying, trying it again yes. and seeing what it will bring out yes so, yes yeah. yeah i find it super interesting also um but fred so i would like to know a little bit more about your environment that you're growing up and how do you think that this environment um helped you to do, develop your own uh, sexual experience in like when you were older I don't think it did. I grew up in a very Calvinistic environment yeah. um, where sex was never discussed, or if it was discussed, then it was only in the context of something to be avoided. It was never discussed as something positive. So I, I was always sort of given warnings about um, what not to do. Um, so I really don't know how that development, how on earth I came from that development to be writing books on the subject. I really don't know. I couldn't tell you, because um, I, I simply don't know. But all, all, I do, all I do know is that it was a very protected environment, Calvinistic, Protestant. Mm. I, I think you said yours was too, although yours was Catholic. Catholic but, yes. But the yes. similarities are yeah. quite striking. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what it did to my development. I really can't tell you that. Mm. I think I sort of got into sex academically as a bit of an accident, really. And do you remember what was this accidental moment? <laughs> in quotes, accidental, because... Well, the most yeah. important thing that happened to me in terms of becoming intersex was a Dutchman, Eric Janssen, um, uh, a former colleague of Mark Spearing, mm. now in Belgium at a place, uh, well, I would call it Louvain, but they don't, they, they say that's the French, it's Louvain, something, something in Dutch. Like, uh, anyway, <laughs> do, do, do not Leuven. be bothered by this, it's hard to pronounce those things. <laughs> yes. I would call it Louvain, which is roughly the French pronunciation. Mm. Anyway, in those days, well, in those days, he was actually in uh, Kinsey mm. Institute in the United States. Mm. That's really cool. Yeah. I had published something on sex, but um, and it not, didn't have a great impact. But then when Eric came along, I met him at a conference, and he said he liked the thing very much that I published earlier. And would I care to come to Amsterdam sometime to give a lecture to the conference of 
I think it was the in of some international organization of sex researchers, which I did. And I thought, what well, if I'm going to discuss with this body, this profoundly important body of sex researchers, I better say something original rather than just repeat what's in the heart. <laughs> so I put my head to head down to study the subject in greater detail for the prospect of getting invited to Amsterdam, which came very soon after that. And then mm -hmm. I did present something. Um, and then I thought, well, I better publish this somewhere. So I did. I published in the journal, Journal of Sex Research. Um, and Eric Yunsen likes it very much. And um, that was a terrific boost. And John Bancroft liked it as well. They were co-authors on their really papers. Nice. So that's how I got to where I am today, really. That's really cool. Yeah, it was a little bit sort of, I guess, accidental. But yes. if you say that you already wrote something about sex, then maybe there was some interest. And, you know, I think because uh, in our cases, like when we were growing up, we weren't able to explore it in depth because it was kind of denied for us, I guess then maybe we were just so curious about this, just so willing to discover something that we didn't know that we just dive into it and try to learn as much as we can. And from there, the interest ex grows and we explore it more. Yes. So, so yes. I guess, you know, it was like because it was so denied to us, therefore yes. we decided to dive into it. It and could be, could yeah. be. Yes, yeah. it could be. It's almost biblical, the, the <laughs> forbidden fruit of Eve in the Garden of Eve. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think it could be that. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so how the sexual um, arousal, sexual desire um, uh, develops in people? Because it, I guess it goes, it can develop in different stages of our lives even when we are yet not born. So would you, would you mind elaborating on this, like how it develops uh, the sexual arousal and desire within us, and which stage perhaps is the most important? I'm not sure one could say that any stage is more important than any other. Uh, what I think seems to happen is that uh, you don't come into the world with a heterosexual desire I think most people end up with a heterosexual desire, not, not all, of course. Um, what I think, it's not entirely clear what happens, but some kind of process of arousal gets associated with the, another individual. And I guess there is a bias, there almost must be a bias towards forming an attachment, sexual attachment to someone of the opposite sex Though I think that's debatable because it could be a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. um, so the issue is this, that it's so in evolutionary theory, if you believe evolutionary theory, then the imperative for sexual desire to be targeted towards a person of the opposite sex is so important that I sometimes wonder why evolution has left it to a kind of chance thing you happen yeah. to meet the right person at the right time you happen to feel arousal and that consolidates that person in your motivational system as the target of desire now of course some people it occurs with a homosexual attraction and i think you know that's not entirely surprising that it could happen that way given that nature has given 
this kind of degree of freedom, if you like, that arousal is not intrinsically attached to a heterosexual individual. And for yeah. some people, uh, so-called asexuals, it never gets attached to another individual. So they can still be sexually aroused, they can still feel, feel aroused, or they can masturbate, they can enjoy sex with themselves, but it doesn't refer to anyone outside themselves. Mm. I think that's probably also another consequence of these degrees of freedom that have been given to the sexual motivation system by evolution. Mm. Why evolution didn't specify that it has to be a um, heterosexual partner, Yeah, I really don't know. There must be some cost attached to that in evolutionary terms, and I can't think mm. what it can be. Yeah. And there is this room for emotional attachment, which takes much more, you know, it's not like we just meet, have sex just so we can have babies. I mean, I guess, therefore, like, we are together in a relationship, so we can, like, the men and women can work together toward growing the children that they have, because maybe by yourself it would be much harder. I mean, I'm sure it's much harder if there is only single parent. Yes. Uh, yes. And, you know, they have to raise the child. And so if there are two of them, it's much easier. Sure. Post-wise and sure. In generally. Sure. So maybe therefore the emotional attachment, attachment is necessary, but... Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think th it is necessary. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, even in this day and age, with with um, welfare systems and a benevolent state and so on, it's still advantageous to have two parents bring up a child. Clearly, from economic mm. and so all sorts of protection, all sorts of. But in our evolutionary history, it was probably even more imperative when when there was no welfare state, no social security, and things like this. That, that pair bonds were formed, and they seem to be formed by endorphins and other neurohormones mm -hmm. that seem to do the trick of pair bonding people. So I, so I think after you've had sex with someone, then it does increase the tendency to form bond with that person. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen to everybody. That's clear. Some people just want a string of partners. Um, and why but, is that, do you think? Like, why well, I think I... it's pitting two control systems against each other because there is one control system the, based upon uh, various substances, neurohormonal substances, um, that is tending to bond. But there is another neural system that is seeking for variety. Mm -hmm. uh, they're clearly in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And evolution has given you two tendencies that pull you in opposite directions. The one tendency mm -hmm. is to stay faithful, monogamous with the one partner, bring up the children together. The other tendency is to spread your genes more widely. Mm. Now, that's clearly more evident in males than yeah. females because yeah. the male has almost nothing to lose by it. Something to lose but very little by comparison with what the female has to lose. If she gets it wrong, then it's tied up her reproductive um, system for 10 months, say. Mm -hmm. So it pays for her to get it right, to choose the right male. Mm -hmm. The male gets it wrong, 
it's only tied up his reproductive system for what for a young man half an hour an hour something like that until he's recovered <laughs> no, uh, in my case several months uh, but, um do you see you see now i don't know the answer to this one evolution mm. has given you those mechanisms and if you want to be terribly blunt crude about it then the the optimal solution is to form a pair bond and to cheat but not get caught this is the thing because why like if we connect together in a pair yes there is this emotional engagement and uh, for several months or even years there is this passion and love and well the the attachment to each other the emotional attachment and we bearing this relationship between two people and then suddenly we decide to seek novelty and we started desiring desiring different people or different sexual experiences yes. so i i wonder why is that like why at some point like we we're like okay that's boring and let's go often behind the back of our partner not saying anything and let's find different uh, sexually exciting things yes or different sexually exciting people why is that and is there a way to prevent it oh that's a good question well people do find ways to prevent it they find swinging monogamy and even within one relationship then the the sexual arousal can respond to things like role playing um novelty within the relationship i don't know the woman to dress in a particular way to have sex on a beach or something or in a forest or unusual experiences like that different experiences seem to some extent to overcome the decline in um desire that otherwise happens but uh i think you know another thing to think about is in our early evolution we were not around for very long mm. the kind of age you're talking about when sexual desire declines to the extent you're looking for someone else well that presumably has been tested in evolution but there's not there wouldn't be that much scope to test it in evolution because a we didn't live very long b there were not the temptations out there in early evolution that there are today so you know computer dating um online yeah. sex um pornography or none of these things were around in our early evolution so what we're seeing today i would guess is a gross exaggeration of this mechanism of as it's called the coolidge effect the the arousal mm -hmm. by a novel partner um but why in our early evolution it was it must have been still evident i don't believe it's evolved in recent years mm. i think it uh, you know i don't think evolution has changed that much over hundreds of years mm. so i imagine it was there in our early evolution too even though there was not that much chance to exploit it in the sense mm. of getting novelty in your relationship mm. it, it is a big puzzle yeah. Because when evolution puts two things that are in opposition to each other, 
you think, well, how was this ever resolved in our early evolution? Mm-hmm. It's difficult. It's difficult. Very difficult now to see how people managed to resolve this one. Yeah, very uh, difficult. Uh, uh, I think uh, cheating uh, is the answer. Yeah, that they yeah. find. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, you know, like I recently did the, the interview with the cuckolding couple. And so for them, one would say it's cheating, but for them, it's the consensual non-monogamy. So they actually agreed both on this, that the uh, the wife, she actually will have different partners and the husband participates in this yes so either he watches or he participates Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, physically mm -hmm. participates in those sexual Mm -hmm, experiences mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh you know so they found this way of dealing with novelty or introducing novelty into the relationship yes um and in in another lecture, I have heard that uh, having a conversation about our sexual desires, about sexual pleasure, what we like, what we don't like, that's something that may also introduce an element of novelty because I think in relationships, we do not speak often about sex and pleasure. We weren't taught that and it's just often avoided topic. So I think having those conversations can help also to find out what we like yes. and be open yes. more of yes. to experiment step by step. Yes. But going back to the cuckolding, uh, to cuckolding uh, yes. couple, there was a like... I was wondering how jealousy uh, works in this case because when I spoke with the male partner, uh, with the husband, he said that it's a like a form of excitement. He, the jealousy turns into excitement, but Absolutely. in other people, exactly. But in other people, in other relationships, jealousy triggers anger, uh, frustration, and. I wonder why is that? Why jealousy can be interpreted in so different ways and impact us so differently? Yes, it's a very interesting question you put there. I think the answer comes down to um, we when we consider the rope bridge experiment. Are you familiar with the rope yes, bridge? Yes, I Dutton am. and Aaron, that the these males walking across a rope bridge were frightened but when they got to the other side and they met an attractive research assistant and answered questions there, their excitement was transformed into sexual desire. And I think what is happening in this situation you describe is, again, it comes down to a similar point we were talking about earlier, that what evolution has given you is a flexible system. So there is this kind of general arousal if you like, excitement, arousal, which can be negative or it can be positive. But the biological basis in terms of the autonomic nervous system is common in those various conditions. Mm. And so, so in the rope bridge experiment, the arousal accompanying fear on reaching safety was transformed into sexual desire. Mm. So the arousal didn't drop to zero um, when, when they got to the other side, rather it was still there, but it, it got labeled differently. It acquired a label of attraction. Mm-hmm. I think that what evolution is doing is that it is, um, again, when it comes to jealousy, 
it has given this, um, I guess for most people, it's a negative emotion. But it can be transformed that all that arousal that would accompany a negative um, experience, it is possible with the cognitive control to transform it into a positive mm. experience. And what is positive about it is, A, it's rerunning some of the images of porno. Um, the guy is looking, and it's, it's his own free porno show in his front room. Mm. B, he sees it as giving a present to his wife. Look, what a good, kind chap I am. You know, I'm giving you this yeah. present. I'm not showing jealousy. In fact, I'm organizing it for you in some cases. Um, so I'm not showing jealousy, though. Um, so I think that, and, and three, I suppose, what he's almost saying is, look, you don't have to wander because I'm bringing you novelty in. I'm organizing your novelty for you. So he's in control of the situation to some degree. And yeah. um, so, look, I brought you gifts. You know, I'm not bringing you gold and yeah. silver, but I'm bringing you a gift of another male into our bedroom. And the, all that arousal then is attaches itself to these positive cognitions rather than the negative cognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there is still the flexibility for it to switch to the negative cognition. Yeah. And, um, I mean, if she were to go off with the man and spend a night in a hotel without him, all that emotion would attach itself to a negative label. Yeah. Does it make sense now? Yeah, it, it, it does make sense. And I think it, it uh, again, I think it comes to having conversations on those different topics because yes. I, I feel like then his brain is ready that, okay, this will happen. And in long term, I actually, because I treat my wife well in this regard and I bring her another partner, I allow her this. And I also have some pleasure in it because I can see it, I can watch it. And I keep, let's say like this, I keep my wife for with me for much longer because I allow those other things. So it's like, you know, the long-term goal versus short-term goal. And I, I yes. guess here the cognitive uh, action comes in also because then we're like, okay, we're thinking about this long-term goal. And it's, it's kind of interesting because now when I'm thinking about this, it's like kind of connecting the long-term goal goal with short-term short goals. So, you know, I think in your book, if I'm understanding it correctly, I read that um, cheating is kind of, you know, the short-term goal, giving into this short-term goal and forgetting about the long-term, which is the relationship. I'm simplifying, really. Yes. Because I you said it much better. I think you're right. Well, I mean, it's the marshmallow effect. Are you familiar with the marshmallow no, effect? No, please tell um, me. Uh, well, the marshmallow effect is that uh, you test children. Do you want? Do you want to eat this one marshmallow now, or do you want to wait a few minutes and have two marshmallows? Now they they tend to go for one marshmallow now when they're young. They get a bit older and they wait for two marshmallows. Now, many of our problems come down to the fact that we eat the one marshmallow now. 
we we ignore the two marshmallows down there and that's true with climate change and the crisis with the environment we go for expensive cars now we go for a flight we go for all this and look we can put it on the back burner we don't need to worry too much about the future yeah, yeah. that that is very evident in britain at the moment with uh, our finding a new prime minister because a soul yeah of 10 candidates nine of them say they want immediate tax cuts well, that's going to be disastrous mm. in the long term. It's mm. good in the short term, but in the long term, it means you can't pay nurses properly and so on. But they're appealing to the population with, in, in a short-term way. They're going for one marshmallow now, ignoring 20 or 50 marshmallows in a year's time, yeah. which they're not going to get. Yeah. And I think with all this, um, it's, if you want your pleasure now, and um, in a case of adultery or infidelity, then if you go for that relationship now, you're taking your short-term pleasure at the cost of long-term suffering, potentially. It won't always happen. Yeah. I mean, if you don't get caught, it might not, might not suffer. Yeah. But um, <laughs> uh, so often people do get caught, and so, but they're sacrificing. The fact that the future might be bad is not carrying as much weight as the prospect of hedonism now, here and now, at this point in time. Okay. That outweighs the long-term prospects. Gotcha. Does it make that, sense? That makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. That, that's really, really cool. Because I was thinking a lot about this when I read your book, and um, I, I'm sure I will have to reread the book because it's, so dense in knowledge, and, and I mean it in a good way, yes. I, I prefer yes. to have a book dense in knowledge yes. than not learn yes. anything. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sure I will have to reread this, and having this conversation helps me better to understand what was in the book. And how, Fred, how do you think we select our romantic uh, or sexual partners? Does physical appearance really matters or is it maybe something that is less conscious so for example the way how we were growing up the environment that we were growing up in well i think freud said we tend to repeat with our romantic partners our upbringing so how mm -hmm. our mothers and i guess fathers treated us is rather how what we look for in a partner that they will treat us much the same way. Now, there's, I think there's a bit of evidence in favor of that. I'm mm -hmm. not sure how much evidence. I think there's some. Um, but what we look for in a partner, I think, is somewhat different between men and women in the sense that men tend to put a great deal of weight on physical appearance. Mm -hmm. Women put some weight on it. It's not irrelevant, but they put less than the man does. They put more weight on the behavior of the male, what he might promise, what, he, what his qualities are, his psychological qualities. Uh, I think it's an unconscious assessment of would this man make a good father. Mm. And clearly, if you're, if you're, in the case of a woman, it pays to do that kind of assessment. Mm -hmm. Now, for the male, not much else matters apart from physical appearance. That's not entirely true because other things do matter. 
But I think the weight is put on physical appearance um, rather than the contextual thing of what does this physical appearance signify in terms of what kind of person is this? Mm -hmm. So um, you say, sorry, just do. So you're saying the physical appearance actually matters, especially for men, but yes. I think it does, because the optimal age of attraction of a woman to a man is 26 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so you might get an 80-year-old who still finds a 26-year-old particularly attractive. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you get many 80-year-old women that still find a 26-year-old man attractive. They're more likely to find a 60-year-old man attractive. Mm -hmm. So as age increases then so the optimal desire of the woman is for a man that also increases in age, whereas mm -hmm. for the man, the optimal woman stays around 26 years of age, um, So, which is, the, which is not only the optimal age of attraction, but it's also the optimal age for reproduction. Uh -huh. Reproduction yeah. success is optimal at around age 26 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it all makes good sense in terms of evolution. Having said that, of course, there's an important qualification to add to all this in that, as we've seen already in this discussion, evolution gives you certain suggestions as to way how to behave, but they're not absolutes, they're not laws cast in tablets of stone their suggestions as to how things go so for example um you know you there are many men myself included who marry someone already having a child now that doesn't increase my reproductive chances in fact it decreases them if anything because you know, you're more likely then to say you won't have any more children because we've already got one <laughs> so it's not. There, are, there are limits to this to the way evolution is predictive as uh, the evolution can predict the optimal strategy in many ways but then culture takes over and puts a fine tuning to it mm -hmm. and you know i think the point is this that evolution doesn't tell us to make babies evolution okay. tells us to find sexual desire attractive and that is a way of making babies. Okay. If evolution, if evolution selected us to make babies, then there would never be a contraceptive industry flourishing the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So basically, babies are the byproduct of yes, the. Yes, yes, yes. That's the way I would look at <laughs> it. Babies are the byproduct of sexual desire. Now, again, as there's qualifications to add to this because some people go set out to have sex in order to make babies. Yeah. But I think that's a recent cultural phenomenon because mm -hmm. in our evolution, I guess it wasn't always known that sex produces babies. Mm -hmm. And there are apparently some cultures, I'm told, I've read, where they still don't know there's a relationship between sexual desire, sex, and having babies. So, yeah. but um, they still don't know that knowledge, um, apparently. So it has clearly given us the imperative to have sex with the incidental spin-off, if you like, of having babies. Spin-off. I like the spin-off. Yes. 
So, <laughs> spin-off, yes. So, the, so someone like me who acquires a child, they, in my case, age 50, um, then we are looking to optimize our own personal survival and desire. Mm. And we are the the factor of evolutionary perpetuation is not so evident in in this kind of case which is more and more you see now mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. you still see it though in the sense that um, men who acquire children through a marriage mm -hmm. uh, they don't produce them biologically but they acquire them are much more likely to be abusive towards that child, mm. even to kill that child, as compared to the biological father. Mm. So, in some sense, that also points towards an evolutionary. But, 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 what? Yeah, okay. So, you're saying because it's not evolutionary, it's not like looking to it from the evolutionary point of view, because it's not their baby, like they're. There are more. There is a chance that they will be more abusive toward this child because yes, it's not theirs. Yes, feel the like, same affection towards mm -hmm. the child. I believe they're like more likely to be sexually abusive. I believe so, but they're more likely to murder the child. Mm. Okay. And, have, and, and do you have in mind a specific example? Because I, I know you also wrote a book about serial killings. And uh, yes, yes, yes. So, do you have some uh, specific example in mind? I can't. Um, I, it's Wilson and Daly who dis did this research. Um, Martha Wilson and. Richard Daly, I think, are the names. Sadly, she has died, but he's still alive. And they, they're in Canada, and they did this survey of statistical analysis on this, finding this phenomenon. Um, now, whether you can say that is in any sense evolutionarily derived, I think that's open to question. Mm -hmm. Because culturally, there's likely more problems arise in them when you acquire a child at age 10, 12, whatever. Um, it's going to be more difficult for that child to accept. So in some sense, you're not really comparing like with like, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. And Fred, so what's the difference, if there is any difference, between sexual arousal and sexual desire when it comes to men and women? I think that you'll find that in men, desire fairly closely matches arousal. Mm. Uh, I think this, you'll find this is the case. Um, whereas it's Meredith Chivers who's done so much research on this, whereas a woman can show signs of sexual desire, even signs of genital arousal, without feeling sexual desire. Now, the most extreme case of this is rape, where, mm -hmm. um, where the woman may feel complete uh, horror, fear, terror at what is happening, 
but still show signs of sexual arousal. I remember talking to Ellen Lahn about this. Again, no longer with us, sadly. And she told me that sometimes in court cases, evidence has been found that the woman was sexually aroused and the male has used this as part of his defense. It couldn't have been rape. She was sexually aroused. Um, Now, uh, we know that that we know that, that, that there is not a one-to-one between desire and arousal. Um, so there can be arousal without desire. There can be desire without arousal. But normally the two work in harmony together. Um, but I, I, again, you see, I think in the case of a male, uh, sexual arousal can be indexed by the erection of the penis, mm-hmm. which is a much more obvious thing than the sexual arousal of a female, which isn't so obvious. Mm, uh, yeah, not yeah. necessarily see it by looking in the same way that you can for the male. Mm, mm. Um, so I think the whole thing ties together in a kind of positive feedback effect that the arousal generates the penile erection, which feeds back to increase the arousal and so on and so on. Okay. And then that locks onto desire. Um, I don't know cases of males who show arousal without desire except in the case of asexuals they do i don't think males that experience heterosexual desire do so divorced from arousal whereas women my understanding is that they 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 often feel the desire first at a kind of intellectual level and then it relates to the bodily signs of arousal or they're in a sexual context and that triggers arousal even though it may not be a a context of desire Hmm. Uh, what what do you mean exactly by it may not be the context of desire well in the case of rape for example there's there's zero rather negative desire in that situation yeah and yet there are signs of of genital arousal in that situation yeah. um even though it's negative desire mm-hmm. yet another example of the flexibility of the nervous system that it doesn't give you the solution to a problem directly you <laughs> some sense work on it by experience it gives you a yeah. start, but then you work on it by experience yes and by learning and i think you know by discovering what do you like, what you don't like, and then you tend to repeat this as a you know learning process that you... Oh, that absolutely to... plays a part, yeah. yes, yes, surely. Yeah, yes. and also learning everything that we see from what we acquire from media and everything that's around us. Oh, yes, surely. So, and that's perhaps a good segue to pornography because, uh, you know, Zach, often this is what we see on the screen we tend to i at least i think so yes that we see it and it's like oh it's interesting let's try to repeat it yes and then depending yes. on if it was like approved let's say by a person uh, who was with us they liked it we might we tend to repeat it or we abandon this uh, we don't do it again yes we abandon this uh, this behavior so um so going to pornography um why why do you think some men who are happily in a relationship they um st- 
still turn to pornography for sexual arousal? Well, I think it's the, I would say two things about that. The first is I think it's an example of the Coolidge effect mm. because it's novel. Mm. It's novel. The, 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 what they're looking at is some other woman um, having sex. It's novel. The other thing I would say comes down to some ideas of a Dutch ethologist, Nico Tinbergen. I try to get the Dutch pronunciation. That was good. That was, that was, that was well to say. Tin Mountain. So many Dutch have mountains in their names. Where are, where are these Dutch mountains? I've never seen one yet. Well, because they don't have it in the landscape, they put it in the surname. That's the That's the answer, is it? Okay, yes. that's the answer. No, I don't know. I'm like I, I don't know. I've asked several Dutch this and they say we're well, all is relative. We have very, very gentle hills and they are mountains when you live in the <laughs> Netherlands. So, I don't know. But what Tin Bechen said was this phenomenon of supernormal stimulus. Mm -hmm. That he, he he looked at herring gulls and their the the mother herring gull sitting on eggs and he gave the mother herring gull natural herring gull eggs and he gave an enormous herring gull egg far bigger than anything she would have produced and she chose to sit on that huh. he called this phenomenon supernormal stimulus um it's something bigger than anything having encountered in evolution so uh, it, the, the, those eggs were never around in the herring gull's evolution, but in some sense, the nervous system interprets them as particularly attractive. And I think something like this happens with pornography. It certainly happens with food. So sugary, fatty foods readily available in varieties um, were not around in our early evolution. Yeah. We had, we had we get fruits, we got vegetables, we killed animals or whatever, but they were much low in calories than the diets available today, and there was not that much variety, and we had to put effort to get them. You didn't just go yeah. to the supermarket and pick, load up a trolley with them. So I think <laughs> they are equally supernormal stimuli, and I think that gambling represents a supernormal stimulus because it was not around in our early evolution. We didn't have casinos. We didn't have online betting. So these things, like pornography, overwhelm our brain. They bombard it with stimuli that are more potent than anything we've encountered in evolution. And hence, you get massive release of dopamine, and that makes these activities potentially addictive for some people. Yeah, and so how, when it comes to pornography addiction, is this a thing, and how do you define addiction? What I would say, there, there are probably as many definitions of addiction as there are people making the definition. I would say, I think, I, well, let's get clear what is not addiction. Okay. I would say it is not addictive to spend a lot of time having sex. So you might have a one-to-one -one relationship. You've just met the person. You're having sex 24-7. <laughs> I wouldn't say no, that's stop. addictive. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't call that addictive. Some people might, but I think that's a misuse of the word. Why not? Because it's not problematic. But, but some, so, so just jump, to jump in, because some people say that they have sex addiction. Yes. And 
Sorry about these noises. I keep getting messages popping up. I'm getting rid I didn't of them. Hear you, it. you don't I, I hear it. Hear oh, because I'm using the earphones. That's yeah, why. Yeah, that's yes. good. I didn't hear it. Yeah, good. Um, nurse. Uh, so with sex addiction, like some people are referred to having sex addiction to, and I, I don't know, because th this is the thing. I have recently listened to a podcast and the woman was saying that, yes, she is a sex addict. Yes, that she has occasional uh, sex um, or had occasional sex out of marriage. Yes, so basically cheating. And the thing is like, is it addiction or you think it's addiction because you, she said that she was raised in very Catholic family and in um, the way how she was taught and she believes that sex out of marriage is absolutely no go. Divorce, it's not possible. So yeah, when she's cheating, she sees it, sees it as a negative thing and it's a sex addiction. But then I was wondering if it's really sex addiction or you just have an increased need for uh, novelty, for having sex with different people, and your sexual desire is just, let's say, higher or different than um, others, perhaps. It's a very tricky one. Mm -hmm. And I think any definition you come up with is going to be problematic. Okay. And mm. I think it partly depends on you answering the question, is this problematic for me? Would I rather not be doing this? Have I sought treatment for this? Mm -hmm. If you can say it's problematic, I'd rather not be doing it. I've sought treatment for it. None of this has made any difference. I still carry on. I can't stop. Um, then I think you can use the notion of addiction usefully. Mm -hmm. um, I think that if someone just commits adultery and says, oh, I must be a sex addict, well, I would ask them the questions. Do you resist it? Do you fight it? Have you sought help for it? If they say, oh, no, 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 I, you know, I just do it, I quite like it, then I think I wouldn't call them addicted. I don't think it contributes anything more than just describing the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Just as one would say, if you occasionally take drugs, of one, magic mushrooms, cannabis, yeah, yeah. even the hard drugs, cocaine, heroin, if you trip occasions a weekend with these things, you don't resist it, you don't fight it, you don't seek therapy for it, then the mere fact you're taking drugs doesn't make you an addict. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now the question alcohol, comes down, it, 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 yes, exactly. Mm. This becomes problematic in the sense that I think these days, if you're a if you smoke 50 cigarettes a day and you try to quit, but you can't, in fact, many people try as many as 25 times before yep. They, yep. they're able to quit. Mm -hmm. You seek help for it. You resist it. You don't want to do it, but you still do it. Mm -hmm. Then that is an addiction. Mm -hmm. The problem comes about with the person smoking 25 cigarettes a day back in 1950, when no one realized there was a health scare about um, cigarettes, the cancer and all that. They smoked 25 cigarettes a day. They said, oh, yeah, I had joy. It's great. You know, gives me confidence, helps me. You know, it's a sociable thing to do, etc. No, no, I don't want to stop. I can afford to buy. Is that person addicted? Now, the 50-a-day mm -hmm. person in 1950 and the 50-a-day person in 2022 are both smoking 50 cigarettes a day. Their behavior looks much the same. Mm 
but only the 2022 person who's resisting it would be said to be addictive, addicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why not the 50 a day? Um, well, I've got a guy answered this to me recently. He said, well, okay, but they are potentially addicted because their nervous system have made all the changes um, that are commensurate with addiction. Mm-hmm. So, so even though he doesn't resist, even though he or she doesn't resist, um, they don't see it as a problem, they don't seek therapy for it, um, the index is that their nervous system has changed in such a way, much the same as the 2022 50 day cigarette smoker. But they don't see it as an addiction, or they wouldn't. Well, well they wouldn't see it as an addiction because mm-hmm. I believe nobody did see it as an addiction back in mm-hmm. the 1950s. It mm-hmm. was glamorous. You know, Hollywood yes, stars yeah. posed yeah. with Marlboro. I'm a real yeah. man, I smoke Marlboro. <laughs> attractive women there you know look look i'm attractive this woman (laughs) yeah that's very actually um when you were saying this i was thinking actually about my dad because he he has trouble stopping to with stopping to smoke to smoke like he he smokes a lot he should stop because of his health but uh, he can't he tried and he keeps going back to it, keeps going yes. back. Familiar story. Mm. Yes. And, and mm. Yes, there we go. Now, what I see here is um, the conscious mind mm. in antagonistic with the unconscious mind. Mm-hmm. So the unconscious mind is largely generating a want, a pull towards nicotine. The conscious mind is saying no. It's the conflict, and I think the unconscious mind is winning in a situation like your father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, what what do you think is possible solution to it? Can you like tame your unconscious mind and? Well, there are various chemical solutions to mm-hmm. it, aren't they? Not sure how successful they are, but wearing nicotine patches. Oh no, not successful. Not no, successful no, in his no, case. No, no. <laughs> Um, maybe try to block the reinforcing effect of it, maybe try naltrexone, which blocks the opioids. But the problem is it blocks everything. Mm. So your father's, your father might, might find it difficult to get out of bed in the morning because he's no pleasures anymore in life. Mm. Mm. Uh, you need something to target that particular pleasure um, without targeting any others. Mm-hmm. And there was, there used to be techniques where whenever you light a cigarette, you're made to feel ill, rather as with alcohol abuse. It's um, like with a therapy that they make you, that they um, connect your sense, like you feel bad about certain things that you do. Um, oh, how was the name of this therapy? I don't remember right now. therapy. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, that was yes. the word that I was going for. Yeah. Yeah. They sometimes try this with pedophiles, yes. for example. Um, they get them to masturbate to satiety on images of children. Mm-hmm. Who, and then then even when the image becomes so satiated, they tell them to keep on. I believe I've got this right, to keep mm-hmm. on masturbating until it mm-hmm. becomes unattractive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are various techniques like this for addictions and mm-hmm. um, one an, another technique is how can you strengthen the conscious control well the conscious control seems to be rooted in the prefrontal cortex the front part of the brain 
and um, when you are confronted with the cigarettes, um, you're there uh, pulling you, uh, you're being urged to engage with them. What is stopping you is, well, oh my God, you know, I could die of cancer. My wife's told me she doesn't like my breath. Um, all sorts of, they're, they're the negative things. But they're not physically present at the time you're pulling off the cigarette. The cancer might happen 10 years down the line. It hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And it's trading off immediate pleasure against delayed phenomena. You know, the negative is not carrying enough yeah. weight to yeah. Yeah. inhibit the... What we said before. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Right. And yes. is this the same with pornography addiction? Because I, I have read and heard uh, opinions that there is no such a thing as pornography addiction and when we talked some time ago you said that definitely there is such a thing as pornography addiction and so how we would define in this case uh, this type of addiction how uh, because there is no there are i think there are no withdrawal syndromes uh, oh, there are there are there okay, can well, be. tell me tell me more there about can this be. if you can they're not as evident as they are in something like heroin or alcohol. Mm -hmm. In alcohol, they can be lethal if you're not careful. There's nothing like that, but there's a depressed mood, uh, anxiety, irritation, things like this tend to increase in frequency mm -hmm. after you stop. Um, see, not all drugs have a massive withdrawal effect evident in the body. Cocaine doesn't. Alcohol and heroin are the classic examples of something that has signs in the body uh, shivering um, is one, goosebumps. Um, there's, there's a variety of different uh, bad effects from stopping hard drugs like alcohol and um, heroin. But there's not with cocaine to anything like the same. There's a depressed mood, but you get that with, um, with, with stopping sex or pornography. It's not as strong and it's not ever present, but it can be there, absolutely. So I would say that if you, t if you take the classic case of addiction, which is heroin, and you tick boxes as to what the qualities of this addiction are, that you get short-term gain, you suffer long-term consequences, it affects your life socially, professionally, uh, whatever, uh, you get withdrawal symptoms when you stop, you escalate, you need a bigger dose to have the same effect. If you look at those boxes that apply to heroin addiction, pornography and sex tick many of those, if not mm. all of them in mm. some cases. So for that reason, I have no shadow of doubt that to call sex and pornography potentially addictive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so for I, I have an example, uh, because uh, that's something this came up uh, in a conversation i i don't know personally this person so i i i probably cannot give you a great amount of details but basically uh, the guy he he says he was addicted to pornography or when he was a teenager and yeah in his younger years and uh, now he is in in a relationship loving relationship and he's committed to his girlfriend he 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 really is in love with her and uh, but he has problem with sexual arousal and erection and i 
the person with whom I spoke was wondering if this can be related to Madonna horror complex that you describe in your book. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah, and I would like to know in what way and why and if what other um, issues may be at play in this uh, situation. I think the issue at play, for a start, this is controversial, this whole idea of porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Some people don't believe it. Mm. David Lee is the textbook case for someone who doesn't believe it, but I think he's got it completely wrong. I, I far put more weight on the evidence saying it does exist. It doesn't exist for everyone that watches porn, even extensively, but um, I think you said he started in his teenage years, did you watch mm-hmm. porn? Yeah. That's the most vulnerable period to addiction. Mm. That's mm. when the brain is most sensitive to acquire incentives that become addictive at that age in the teenage years what i think can be happening is that what they see on pornography um the partner doesn't match it because they see all sorts of extreme acts in pornography um and they see the 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 woman being ever ready ever receptive Mm. will do anything they want she, he's in charge, she does whatever they want, oral, anal, whatever, then you can see it in pornography. And then they come to a regular woman who said, well, I'm not sure about this. You know, I don't really like this very much. Yeah. And, he, and the contrast effect between the two means that she's, I think it's a bit like a heroin addict being offered mm-hmm. cannabis mm-hmm. Um, or nicotine oh god i don't really like that very much you know it's just not what i'm used to yeah i think it's a contrast effect and i do believe it does exist well you you've given a very good example just now there's any number of gary wilson has got produced any number in his book your brain on porn mm-hmm. um i just got something from his widow this morning um on this subject of about uh, erectile dysfunction um so I think that I think that's the that is the explanation for it. Um, you see, the old porn was never have the, it's again it's Tinbergen's um, supernormal stimuli. It presents supernormal stimuli that yeah. saturate the system, and anything less than that is inadequate to produce the same arousal. Mm. I and believe you, that's the way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think is? Uh, uh, so, well, if, what would you recommend this young man to do to kind of, uh, well, enjoy his romantic relationship and perhaps be sexually aroused within that relationship? If he can, I think the general advice in that situation is to abstain from looking at porn. Mm-hmm. If you stay away from it for a month or two or three, then... That seems to, there there is experience showing that that can be very helpful to overcoming this effect. Mm. You've got to seriously stay away from it, not just having an occasional look. You've got to be really honest with yourself and cut yourself off from it. The other side of it is, um, well, watch it with the girlfriend. Yeah. That would be the answer, I would say. Watch it with the girlfriend and maybe have sex watching it while you're watching it. 
and I guess talking about what what they enjoy in the specific video or the, yes, what they don't. Yes, and she could say what exactly. She could say what she finds acceptable and what she finds unacceptable. Yeah. Um, because some men tend to try to subtle or not so subtle ways to bully their partners. Mm. Say, look, you know, this That's is what true. real women do. Um, you know, they have to accept that that real women. No, those, they're not the real women. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're not the real. The real, real women um, don't always want to do everything that's shown in the porn movie. Mm. Um, very often they don't. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it takes time. Maybe maybe you should give it, give it a bit of time. But that, I mean, look, I'm not a therapist, so I'm a bit hesitant to give advice. But mm. uh, from what I've read, then I would definitely ask him to stop looking at the porn uh, because if he looks, he might get withdrawal symptoms, of course, but they'll pass in time. In a couple of months, they'll pass. Um, and try to devalue the porn, revalue the partner, mm. get her involved in it as well. Don't do it surreptitiously behind her back, but after your two months or so, then mention to her the prospect of looking at this together. Yeah. Maybe start very gently looking at it yeah. together and see what fires her. And I, I think you mentioned a very important thing that uh, often in the pornographic films, women are, uh, or the sexual pleasure is just there and women are always ready and to receive and to enjoy it and everything right. happens super quickly, yes. They're ready 24-7, they're ready. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 build the plumber comes in to repair yeah. the uh, broken pipes in the house and she's already standing there with a mini yeah. skirt on uh, she yeah. just happens to be in a mini skirt and stockings and all that the plumber comes in and sure enough within a minute or so they're at it um well generally speaking life is not like that it is sometimes mm. but not always mm. not usually not yeah like that. yeah yeah exactly, um, exactly. So even if you try even if you try it's just not i think it's uh, un very unrealistic to expect someone to be ready to have sex with another person 24 hour a day and non-stop and you know it's like well let's think about the lubrication the excitement the erection like like you know, yes, there yes. is a period when we need some time off from yes, that to absolutely. get again sexually excited. It's like, you know, yes. the mountains. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I mentioned Madonna Horror Complex. Can you explain it a little bit? Well, I can only describe it. I can't explain mm. it. But someone yeah. who is... <laughs> <laughs> Someone who's grown grown up with a puritanical view that their culture has been one of where where women are pure, um, then they look for that in a woman, but nonetheless have these same feelings and urges to engage uh, with other women who do more things than the uh, Madonna will. Mm. Um, so. There's a scene in, I think it's Analyze This, where the gangster is using prostitutes for oral sex. And someone says, well, you've got an attractive wife. Why not ask her? Her? My wife, who kisses my baby boy goodnight at night, using her for this? No way. And I think that's a good example. It captures the double standard. Mm. Perfectly all right. Um, 
to do it with a with a woman with a with a sex worker but my wife oh my god i wouldn't ask her for oral sex because those are the lips that kiss my baby boy good night at night so it's something like that that is happening mm. yeah it's it's very interesting because i uh, also know that you know in a lot of loving relationships partner won't have any problems uh, uh to do all those things with the partners won't have any problems to do all the other things with each other, you know, all yes. sorts of things, you know. Yes. So, yeah, it, it's a very, very interesting. And I think it's so much wired in uh, culture, in our, uh, how we were raised and yes. what uh, things were like, what, what we were taught and how we were taught to think about certain element of our elements of our society. Yes. And um, so, when uh, obviously when it comes to sexual uh, arousal and desire we as we just probably mentioned it uh, we enjoy a lot of different things and so some people uh, are more aroused let's say by something called vanilla sex and some other people will go to more extremes so um they will be aroused by different objects or by pain or humiliation yes, and it's yes. like I, I, and and sometimes it's very extreme like like it's not like pinch on the skin or something no, like this but no, it, it's no, a lot no. um and I, it's like, why, why is that? Why do we seek this extreme pleasure? And because it connects with so much pain, and or at least when I look at it, yes, uh, I, 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 it feels painful to me. It, it, I'm actually very, even scared of doing something like this. Don't, me too. Yeah. Me too. And so why is that? And maybe that's again that uh, the, the breach effect we were talking about. Yes, it is. is. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing as you've just yeah. said. I think the rope bridge phenomenon. Yes. yes. Yeah. I think it's that. And I think what is happening is, of course, that um, pain and tissue damage can release opioids as a kind of coping mechanism. I wish they'd release a few of may get rid of this, <laughs> help this finger to heal. Um, they don't seem to be releasing many now. I Maybe think you should be... like break it more. Maybe break then it, it that, would, yeah, that would do it. I think it's a learning effect as well. I mean, you know, you have these opioids and if it so happens that at the time you feel a sexual arousal for whatever bizarre reason, it can lock into a kind of an association between pain and sexual arousal. It really just has to be something like that. For those who don't ever experience or want to experience, it seems bizarre beyond all measure, but clearly some people do um, find pain an aphrodisiac. Mm. And you know, I because we earlier mentioned psychedelics, and I uh, recently I have heard that if you uh, use smaller dose of psychedelics, your conscious mind may still take control over it, and so your experience won't be as effective. Let's say, um, but if you put uh, you you take higher dose. Then you just let go of this conscious uh, thinking. Same, I think, 
like not thinking now that maybe with this extreme uh like pain experiences humiliation when it when we take it to extreme it's like bringing this higher dose uh, uh like with psychedelics yes, uh, yes. and then we are le- able to let go of this conscious thinking what holds our brain and then we just let go and we it, let is, into this perfectly possible uh, yes yes i know just yeah yes that's perfectly possible mm-hmm. and fred now like uh, often i can hear in uh i mean like on inter- see on internet or hear uh some podcasts about gender and it's very hot topic right now and it's something i a little bit struggle with still because in a way that I was raised knowing that there are two genders, male and female. But often now I hear that gender is social construct, that it's it's fluid and it's uh, like we no longer see association between uh, our genitals, the genitals that we have and the gender that we perceive or how we feel. And what what's your thought on it? Do you think gender can be a social construct? Well, certainly in large part it can be, but I think you said you were raised that there are two genders. Yes, I wasn't. I was raised there are two sexes. Gender yeah, yes, yes. Of course, in, the day, in my early days, I never came across gender until I was an adult. I don't think my parents would have ever heard of the word gender. They might mm. have. I don't know. I doubt it. So I think the way things are going, I would say without any shadow of doubt that sex is biologically determined. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I think to call sex a gender, a social construction, is nonsensical. What I think is that could well be large part socially constructed is gender, which itself depends upon biological sex, but it's not a one-to-one link. Mm-hmm. So you could be a biological male and yet have feelings of being a female. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't make you biologically a female. It makes you a biological male still, but with a gender orientation towards being female. That's the distinction I would want to work on. I think otherwise it's completely unscientific and it's intellectually fraudulent to say that sex is a so social construction i think it gets us nowhere mm-hmm. um so so and I, I can't spend long now i'm r- running out mm-hmm. of time i'm yeah. sorry to say no no you have no, a no, final was... question about yes anything. i do yes What's the I final do, question? <laughs> What's this? um so uh it's a little bit funny one but i hope <laughs> you don't mind uh, so men like to send a lot of dick pics and I keep hearing that a lot from women on social media, etc. And uh, why is that? Why men like to like show off their genitals? I rarely hear of women sending vulva pictures. So why men like to do that? What well, it men- I think it comes back to the very same thing we talked about throughout. And that is that the male is a more visual creature. He's a more proactive creature. He's a more sexually, I'm going to say driven, but I don't like the word drive. Um, he's sexually more the explorer, the adventurer, the instigator. And I think maybe he thinks if he were to receive a picture of female genitalia, he would be fired by that 
So surely it's reciprocal. They must be fired by an image of my erect penis. Now, the fact that I've never heard a female say she was actually aroused by a picture of an erect penis. I've never heard one single one. I've heard them say I find it a big joke that I have heard. I don't think that's <laughs> yeah. the reaction that the male wanted. <laughs> he wanted her to be sexually turned on. It's advertising his sexuality. And again, I think it arises from the fact that he cannot accept or believe that a female would not be turned on by it simply because he would be turned on by the sight of her genitalia. Mm. Um, you know, I think, I think that's the explanation. Yeah, yeah, uh, makes sense to me. Makes yeah. sense to me, Fred. I can't, I can't think we could say much more about it than that. Yeah. Well, that was, again, that... exemplif it, sorry, it exemplifies the difference in approaches to sexuality between men and women. Mm. I, another way I'd look at it is, you, I, I used to ask this of my tea group in Amsterdam when I was lecturing 100 or so students. I would say in Britain, and probably here in Holland too, men are regularly arrested for stealing underwear off clothes lines, women's underwear off clothes lines, mm -hmm. gathering a collection of underwear. E even here in liberated, progressive Amsterdam, have you ever heard of a woman being arrested for stealing men's underwear? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Why not? If we're all equal, why not? Why aren't they arrested? The point is we're not all equal. The male is more turned on by the the physical attributes of the female and those things associated with her physical attributes, mm. which include her underwear. Mm. And that's something that remains really close to her body. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Some males even break into women's homes to steal their underwear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have read this somewhere, either uh, some, probably somewhere on your Facebook. I did read that specific thing. Could that, be, yeah. could be, yes. Yeah. Fred, thank you so much for, for talking to me. That was super fascinating. I truly.